This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ plus communities. This is Well, 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 brought to you by the team from Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. You're listening to Well, Well, Well on Joy and the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Cal Hawk, and here on Well, 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 we dive into the issues impacting and interwoven into the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ plus communities and people living with HIV. Well, 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 was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people down here in St. Kilda at Joy Studios in the Victorian Pride Center. On Well, 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 we do love to chat with doctors around an array of health topics, but with World AIDS Day just around the corner on the 1st of December, I'm talking to three generations of doctors involved in the response to HIV and AIDS over the years, asking each of them to reflect on their careers, personal experiences, and how, just how far we've come four decades on in responding to HIV in this country. To kick things off, I've asked Dr. David Bradford back to the show. Longtime listeners may remember when we had David on from the VAC Legacy series about five years ago in the lead up to Thorn Harbor Health's 35th anniversary. Now, David's back in to talk about his experience after graduating from Sydney University in 1965, a brief stint in Vietnam, some time in London in the 1970s. He did move back to Australia and started to specialize in sexual health just as the epidemic of HIV and AIDS hits Australian shores. Now, Dave is going to be joining me here in the studio to talk about the tra- his trajectory into sexual health and his involvement in the early response to HIV and AIDS. That's all coming up here on this week's episode of Well, Well, Well. You're getting Well, Well, Well with the team from Thorn Harbor Health. You're listening to Well, Well, Well here on Joy and the Community Radio Network. I'm Cal Hawk, and now joining me in the studio is the one and only Dr. David Bradford. Welcome to the show, David. But I should actually say welcome back because we did talk to you about five years ago, I think around the 35th anniversary of Thorn Harbor Health and the Victorian AIDS Council. Um, thanks for coming back onto the show. That's all right. It's it's a pleasure. Can you tell listeners a little bit about the start in your career in medicine and how you got involved? Oh, I'll, well, my parents um, always wanted me to be a doctor. And, uh, you know, I was a pretty compliant son, so their wishes were complied with and uh, I graduated from Sydney University in 1965 and I was an intern at uh, Concord Repatriation General Hospital in Sydney and I guess that kind of shaped my early career because I at the end of two years as an intern I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I thought I might want to specialise in surgery but I wasn't absolutely sure And uh, because of the contacts, uh, army contacts in the repatriation hospital, I just, and because Vietnam had just started up and there was a need for young doctors in the Australian army to go to Vietnam, I thought that might be a good way of um, gaining experience, particularly um, surgical experience. And so I signed up in the army. And so I was in the army for the next 22 months, including a year in Vietnam. But kind of a baptism of fire, really. Yes, it was. I was kind of lucky in that it wasn't quite as bad a baptism of fire as it might have been. Um, I was kind of lucky that the, um, the army, in their wisdom, decided I should be the doctor for a artillery regiment. And the artillery is always back a bit from the action. And so I spent the whole of that year looking after 
basically young men, all around average around the age of 20, 21, um, about, I suppose, about 800 in all. Um, and I was like, really, their GP. Of course, there were some injuries and there were a couple of um, nasty war wounds, um, but predominantly it was just being ordinary old mundane general practice. And I mean, not to, to generalize, I guess, thinking defense force and military, but, you know, you do hear stories back in the day that, you know, when you were on tour, STIs and things like that. Is that kind of how you segued into sexual health? It is in, indeed the way I, I got into sexual health. Um, because as I said, it was like being a GP, but this was a GP for a select group, um, young men uh, who were by and large cooped up in an army camp in um, in, in Nuidat, in the jungle, um, for um, a whole year. And the only times they got off was five days um, that they had for rest and recreation in the country, in a place called Vung Tau on the coast, and five days in a foreign capital, Bangkok, Manila, Hong Kong, um, and later on Sydney. And, uh, and inevitably they behaved like young men always do and they acquired sexually transmitted diseases. And so a very large part of my practice was looking after people who had sexually transmitted infections. Wow. And I mean, I, I imagine a lot of this would fly under the radar, but at that point, did, were any of them gay? Um, very little indication about it because it wasn't a thing you talked about in right. the army. I certainly didn't talk about the fact that I, by that time I was pretty sure I was gay. Um, I certainly didn't let on to anyone, even my closest friends in the army. And, uh, and it was not surprising, therefore, that um, young, young private soldiers or gunners, as my, my lot were called, um, would want to talk about it either. Fair but enough. there were kind of little suspicions that you got as a doctor. Mm. Okay, so you, you leave, you, you know, uh, your time in the, in the military, and where to next? Well, then I went to England because I decided it would be totally unacceptable to my family um, if I was to announce that I was going to become a specialist in sexually transmitted infections. It certainly wasn't um, looked upon with great favour in the medical profession either. So I decided I'd do what I'd originally thought and decide to specialise in surgery. So I went to England to do a course in, um, in surgery in basic medical sciences and then I, um, I worked in hospitals around London um, for the next uh, nearly three years and, uh, and I got a couple of surgical degrees and then I came home to Australia well, when I came home to Australia, I was on a long holiday of about six weeks. This was after I passed my surgical exams and before I went back to take a registrar job in surgery back in England. And uh, when I was at home, uh, several things happened that were kind of um, <laughs> life-changing. One was that I came out to my parents. Um, the other was that I met my partner, who I'm still with, and there were then all the complications of my having to go back to England and he still being here in Australia. And so for the next eight months, we corresponded. We, we did those phone calls that lasted three minutes and all of that sort of stuff. So what, roughly what year is this? This is 1973. Oh, 74. right. 
Mm. Okay, so <laughs> well and truly before any sort of Zoom, Skype, Facebook. Exactly. <laughs> okay. There was nothing like that at all. We used to make tapes. We both had little tape recorders, you know, those little, you know, tiny tape recorders, and we used to send tapes. You could get kind of pocket tapes that you could easily post and send back and forth. Yeah, right. Yeah, so that's how we kept it up until uh, I left I left Australia in in January, I and he came over to live with me in August. Okay. Mm. And we've been together ever since. Well, that how long have you been together? Well, 50 and a bit years. That's remarkable. Mm. And congratulations to you both in that <laughs> regard. That's uh, no small feat, so well, to speak. Yeah, exactly. It was quite a feat. The, the first few months are the worst because we'd only ne- known each other for a very short period of time um, in Australia before I had to go back to England. And uh, and so we had to learn to live together. And that, that you know, that took a bit of doing, really. Yeah, <laughs> I think it takes a bit for anybody, really. Yeah. But 55 years later, that is remarkable. Coming back to your career, though, what bring, how do you eventually get back here? And, you know, and how do you get involved in sexual health? Because you said there was a bit of stigma in the industry attached to being... Oh, well, in, the, in the profession, there certainly was. Uh, well, what happened was I, I decided I wasn't cut out for surgery. So I, I had a period in general practice in London before I came back to Australia. We both decided after living in in London for well between seventy um, three and uh, seventy nine, we decided we had we ought to come back to Australia, and so I came back to Australia. But before I came back, I had started renewing my interest in in sexually transmitted infections by doing some uh, part time locum work in a in a an STD clinic in in London. And while I was doing that, I did a diploma in uh, venereology, as it was called then. And so I came back to Australia equipped with those, and there was a job going at the Melbourne Sexual Health Centre, which was previously called the Melbourne Communicable Diseases Centre. And so I started there in early 1980. Okay. Um, And uh, and the, the... the boss, the old director of the clinic, retired a few months later and um, they suggested that I should apply for the job and I got it. And so I became the director of the clinic. And this was the one in the, in the CBD, yeah? Yes, it was in the CBD in Little Lonsdale Street. Yes. Um, and so you're, you've stepped into this. It's the early 80s. It's the early 80s, yes. About a year later, I think the first AIDS-reported case comes up in the New York Times. June 1981. Yeah. So when yeah. does it get onto your radar? Well, um, it was published in a thing called the MMWR, which I can't remember what it stands for, but it was a, a, a monthly or bi-weekly, twice we- um you know, fortnightly publication from America that kind of detailed new developments in infectious diseases. It um, had a little article about the um, the outbreak of Kaposi's sarcoma and pneumocystis carinii pneumonia um, in June 1981. And someone in the health department um, who whose job was to look at these things had crossed his desk and he, and he wrote a note on it saying, um, maybe... Bradford, you'd be interested in this and sent it down to me. And that was the first I heard about it. And did, at the time, did it just seem like a rare thing that wasn't going to become... I mean, did you have any sense that it was going to become... Well, the, the number of cases that were detailed in that were, were 
you know, concerning, I think you'd have to say. Um, and, and certainly when you started to read the gay press from um, America, um, you, you realised that people in gay people in America were very concerned about it and what it might mean for the future. And so we started to get concerned back here in Australia. And from um, having to look after, you know, well-documented sexually transmitted infections like gonorrhea and syphilis and nonspecific urethritis and chlamydia and so on, suddenly we were confronted with what might be a lethal sexually transmitted infection in, in, in that it resulted in AIDS and ultimately in death. So it was very, um, very concerning and, um, and, and not a little frightening, really, because there was so little known about it in the, in the first few years. Now, David, the community is starting to hear they're getting quite alarmed yes. around the emergence of, I mean, th- at that point, we were really talking about AIDS. And the Also Foundation has uh, organizes a community forum, I guess, if you will, yes. in June of 1983. And you get whacked up on stage for that. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yes, I got whacked up on stage with some other doctors. There were there were a, a few gay doctors in Melbourne who was who had general practices, which were largely focused on providing good care for gay people. And um, and those doctors were well known in the gay community and so they and me and um and the registrar from the Royal Melbourne Hospital who at the time in infectious diseases who at the time was Dr Ian Fraser who subsequently became a professor and discovered the vaccine for HPV oh right okay um yes he was on stage as well the the how did how did I feel about it what was the experience like for me well the experience was that we were um, being asked questions that we didn't have the answers to. And that was um, frustrating. Uh, No doctor likes to be put on the spot and ask questions that he doesn't have the answer to. And we were meant to make sense. So we, we each contributed. We each had a little say. And then there were questions from the floor. And um, the questions name mostly revolved around how do you not get this thing and what do you think causes it? And and at that time, it wasn't even definite that it was caused by a virus. No one knew that. It was strongly um, suspected in many um, expert quarters, but um, it wasn't known. And there were all sorts of all sorts of strange theories that it might be due to using too much amyl and it might be due to too many sexual partners because the the initial papers from the United States went into details about the patients who had AIDS and who had died of AIDS. And one of the things they focused on, because I suppose it was sensational, was how many sexual partners these guys had had. And of course, like most gay men, they'd had lots of sexual partners. And so there was shock horror in the news reports about this. And it was suggested that if you had too many sexual partners, that it might overload your immune system. And therefore, it would crash. And that's why you were susceptible to these opportunistic infections and cancers. It had nothing to do with it it whatsoever. But but it was a theory that um, many people kind of held on to for quite a while. When is it that you have your first patient or client what was that experience like when you go i'm dealing with someone who has who's hiv positive or has an aids defining illness right well the first patient that we had in the clinic 
um, came in in about towards the end of 1984. Um, and this was a young man who, um, who had developed um, weight loss and a cough, and a cough that wouldn't go away. And he'd come in because he thought he needed to check up for sexually transmitted infections because he had had lots of casual, anonymous sexual encounters. And meantime, he was living out in the suburbs, in the eastern suburbs, uh, with a very respectable family. He was a scout master, um, and he, he you know, so he was looked up to in his local community. And uh, and yet, you know, he'd been doing the beats sometimes at night, and he'd. Um, and although we checked him out for sexually transmitted infections, we didn't at that stage have the um, HIV antibody test. However, um, I thought, having having read about the symptoms of pneumocystis, that it was pretty definite that he might actually have that. And so I sent him out to Fairfield Hospital and they admitted him. And sure enough, he did have PCP and he was treated in the hospital. And then, then we followed him up at the clinic, um, you know, quite regularly after that. When that starts to happen, of course, that's just to be, uh, be imagine one of the first of several patients. It was, it was. When do you get a sense of, I guess, scale of the worst? I mean, did you see the worst of it coming and, you know? Well, we did, you know, because once that, that we'd had that exp- patient experience, me and my staff I'm talking about at the, at the clinic, um, we started to realize that there were many other particularly gay men who um, were exhibiting not quite as florid symptoms as he'd had. But, um, well, for example, um, a a guy I knew quite well who uh, I'd first met when I was doing blood tests at Steamworks at the the gay sauna in in the CBD, Um, he, he came along one day very, very terrified and he said to me, I'm really, really scared because I found this lesion on my leg. Um, and when he showed it to me, I was scared too because it was absolutely classical of the pictures that I'd seen of Kaposi's sarcoma. I'd never seen it, of course, in a patient, but um, I'd certainly seen a number of pictures in the, in the press um, in the, and in the medical journals that were coming out at that time. And so... So I sent him to Fairfield too to have it biopsied, and um, and and then following that, there was just a, a run of people who were obviously um, um, exhibiting symptoms. And at, around about that time, toward, at the end of 1984, we first had the opportunity to do HIV antibody tests. They weren't officially available then, but this was a, an in-house test that had been developed at Fairfield by the virology department at Fairfield Hospital, and they offered it to us at the clinic. Now, I'm, I'm mindful that, you know, I've obviously working in this space for a while. I'm familiar, but listeners who may not know, what is a Carposi sarcoma? Because you mentioned pneumocystis pneumonia. People are familiar with pneumonia, roughly. Yes. What is KS? Or, Ka- uh, yeah. Well, Carposi sarcoma was a rare, a really rare cancer or tumour. Um, it was largely seen in people... Um, elderly gentlemen, you know, well, when I say elderly, probably 60 and over, gentlemen of, um, of, of kind of um, Mediterranean stock, um, and it didn't seem to happen in anyone else. And, and, and it causes these uh, purpley um, 
spots on the skin. And in, in, in these elderly gentlemen that had been known about before, it was a very slowly developing cancer um, and not of great, con- you know, huge concern. Of course, they, they, were, they were treated with a radiotherapy and so on to slow down its progress. But in these young men, it was quite a prolific cancer and it spread not just in the skin, but it could occur on the mucous membranes, in the mouth, in the intestine, in, in the intestinal tract. Um, and it could spread uh, metastasize to the lungs and and ultimately be, be fatal. So it was a very very unpleasant tumor in in the, in these immune suppressed young men. The medical community more broadly. I mean, you're obviously coming in with a, um, I guess, an empathy and a, and a sympathy around the fact that you are a gay man yourself. Yes. But mm. how do you think the medical community more broadly? Did you observe? You know, what were your reflections on that back in, I guess, the late 80s, early 90s? Well, the medical community in general responded fairly poorly, I think. I think the main reason was that they, um, most of them weren't used to seeing gay patients. So they, they weren't really coming across it at all in their daily practices. Um, there were certainly some who, who, who became aware early on, like dermatologists who had Kaposi's sarcoma referred to them. But by and large, mainstream medicine, it bypassed. And, uh, and so I think the response was slow. And I think the prejudices that were around in the community um, about this gay disease um, applied to the a large bulk of the medical profession too. There were notable exceptions, of course, but apart from the, the um, gay doctors or gay sympathetic doctors who were used to dealing with gay patients, I think on the whole the medical profession was in ignorance and uh, didn't really want to know. World AIDS Day is coming up at the end of this month. Uh, Four decades on since those first community meetings in 83, what are your reflections on our progress in that time? Oh, well, I I think our progress has been enormous as far as um, both the management of HIV is concerned, the outlook for patients with uh, HIV AIDS, the the community feeling about it. Uh, I think largely the stigma has dissipated. It's still there in some quarters, but by and large it's dissipated. And I think the fact that we have good preventions now, I mean, we had to depend on condoms. And selling condoms to young sexually active people is not easy. Um, you know, they, they understandably uh, make excuses and try and not use them and forget to use them. Um, but the fact that we've now got a drug that you can give and that someone can take daily and that can, you know, 99% prevent you from acquiring HIV has made a tremendous difference, I think. And, um, and I think that that is, it means that the optimistic hope of actually eradicating HIV infection is well on the horizon. What impact do you think it has had on you? Well, I think it's it had, like any doctor who had to uh, look after patients back in those bad old days before we had effective treatments, it had a huge impact. Um, you know, there were colleagues of mine who burnt out, understandably, I myself found that I really couldn't continue in the in the practice that I'd moved into after leaving the the health department's STD clinic, 
because the, the, pa- the patient load of HIV patients had got just too much. And that's really one of the main reasons why I left and went to work in Cairns, where the patient load wasn't nearly as high and where it could be shared around a bit more. Speaking of personal reflections, not too long ago, you also wrote a book. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Yes, I wrote a book. Um, uh, It's called Tell Me I'm Okay, and it's published by um, Monash University Publishing. And the reason I wrote it was I wanted it, it not to be forgotten what the early patients with HIV had gone through in those days. And so I chose the stories of about, um, I think there's about seven or eight patients that I've documented their stories and explained, you know, what they went through and uh, what their progress was. And um, the whole idea was really so that they wouldn't be forgotten and so their contribution wouldn't be forgotten because many of these patients went on clinical trials where there was no real guarantee that it would benefit them at all but that it might well benefit the rest of the community in the long run and they did that willingly and uh, you know often went through um, you know lots of you know difficult times because of that so I think that um, those were the reasons I wrote the book so that those people wouldn't be forgotten. Well, look, I, I did read the book when it came out, and it's been a few years ago now, um, but it is an excellent read, and it touches on a lot of the stuff that we discussed today. Dr. David Bradford, thank you so much for joining us yet again on Well, Well, Well here on Joy in the Community Radio Network. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. That has been another episode of Well, Well, Well. A big thank you to my guests this week. If you want to hear more from the series or catch up on previous episodes of Well, 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 head to the Joy website, www.joy.org.au slash wellwellwell. There you can also subscribe to the podcast as well as email us if you think there is something impacting the health and well-being of our communities that we should be talking about. I'll be back next week continuing our series in the lead up to World AIDS Day. Until next time, look after yourself and those around you. This is Well, Well, Well here on Joy and the Community Radio Network. Thanks for listening to Well, 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 supported by Thorn Harbor Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. For more LGBTIQ plus health and well-being and much more, check out Thorn Harbor on social media at Thorn Harbor or via the website thornharbor.org. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.